Well, let's pick up where we left off last week, but before we do that, let's just recap a little bit so we're all on the same page. What we have here, we've been working through the spring feast, and we got all the way through them, and we're going to be going into the fall feast today. And so we started with Passover, Unleavened Bread, First Fruit, and Pentecost. Those are considered the spring feast. And then we've got this interval here that we've, we talked about. So let's back up. The purpose of all of this is, is we were trying to find how Christ fulfilled all of this. These things are appointed time. They were holy convocation for the Jewish people. Still are to this day, as a matter of fact. They just happened to miss the fulfillment. They looked the other way. They didn't like it. And so what happens is, is when we look through Scripture and we begin reading it, we read it with a couple of different lenses on. We read it with some sort of a denominational lens in which we've always been taught this, therefore this must be what it says. Or something, some sort of an upbringing. Or we read it through the lens of how we were brought up in general. Whether you're brought up in church or not, it's irrelevant. We read the Bible in the way that we want it to say. So what we do is we call proof texting. It's like, I believe this, now let me go find a scripture that lines up with it. And what we should do is allow scripture to interpret scripture. And when we begin to do that, we pick up on these different types and shadows and these things that are going on. One of which are these feasts and these festivals. Jesus fulfilled Passover to the very day. He was our Passover lamb. The Jewish people in the book of Exodus, as they were getting ready to leave Egypt, they God enacts his Passover where they were to sacrifice the lamb, apply the blood of that lamb to the doorpost. And therefore that the angel of death that was coming to bring uh, judgment upon the gods of Egypt would pass over their home. And in doing that, they are now safe and free to go. They get to escape Egypt. But the thing was, it wasn't just a sacrifice of the lamb. That wasn't enough. They had to apply the blood. It's no different than you and I. Is that we have to apply the blood of Jesus. If this becomes a problem, I may switch microphones, just so you know. I'm moving, I'm moving it around, so we're going to try. Okay. Um, but we have to apply that blood. It's not enough to just sacrifice it. It had to be applied. But down to every single detail, that no spot or blemish. Jesus was, for four days, was run under the gamut of, of people trying to figure out what he did wrong. How Somehow we have to find something he's guilty of in order to kill him, and they could find nothing. I find nothing, no fault in this man, is what Pilate said, and yet they crucified him anyway. He was our unleavened bread, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for seven days they would eat nothing but unleavened bread. It was that nasty matzah stuff. And they would eat it that way because leaven is always a symbol of sin inside the Bible. Leaven puffs up. And so they had to remove all the leaven from the house. It was the same thing, removing sin. Jesus was our unleavened bread and that he was sinless. And he stayed in the grave. And then, of course, he's our first fruits offering. And the fact that when he resurrected, he resurrected on the very day of the festival of first fruits. And therefore became to us what that is. And that's a symbol of the resurrection. And all of these things are pointing to Christ. Then we get to the Feast of Pentecost, 50 days later, Shavuot in which they um, celebrate is the, the giving of the law. At Mount Sinai, when Moses was up there, they celebrate the giving of the law because to them, that was everything. 613 Levitical laws that were all given to them. We say, hey, will you do all of this? It was a covenant with God and the Israelites specifically. And so in doing so, they, uh, they celebrate that. But we see it, the antithesis of that in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, because it was the birth of the church when the Holy Spirit fell upon them. They all spoke in other tongues, and they hear this sound, and people are coming around trying to figure out what is going on. And that was the Feast of Pentecost, and we see the birth of the church. And then last week, we talked about this middle part, this, this, this four months in the middle where nothing is happening. And how that's indicative of what's going on with us, the age in which we are living in, until the fullness of the Gentiles. If you are not a Jewish person, you are a Gentile person. 
And so that would be all of us in this room, with the exception of maybe Stan as we're fighting out. But that's more to do because he's cheaper and, you know, cheap. So, but any, he's thrifty. He's thrifty. He's frugal. He's tighter than two coats of paint. That's what he is. So anyhow, he, uh, I wish he was here. It's so much more fun when he's here. To, let's get him on the phone. Okay. Uh, but, but anyway, but we've got this time frame. I wish the church is doing what they're supposed to be doing. The evangelization of the world. It was twofold. Uh, one is we're to evangelize all nations. That was given to the Jewish people. The disciples said, hey, I want you to go into all the world. But there was another part of that is that we are to bring the Jewish person to jealousy. That they see that we have a relationship with this same God that at one point was only for them. And if you wanted to worship Yahweh, then you had to become an Israelite. There was the only way to do it. But now suddenly the doors are open and everybody can come in. And we're in this time frame, this four-month time frame between these feasts. Because once we get into the fall feast, now is the return of Christ is what we're going to see today. And so you see this four-month interval, which happens to line up very nicely with the seven letters to seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Because you can look at those and see, okay, there's different church ages that seem to make sense here. And so we, we get all of these pieces together and we're like, okay, what are we doing and why are we here? But there was one thing that Jesus said, and we hammered on this last week, is that he said, you need to be watch. You need to be watching because the signs of the times are here. You need to be paying attention. If you remember when Jesus rode into Jerusalem with tears in his eyes because they were not prepared for his coming. They were not watching. They should have recognized it. All the prophecies, everything that had happened prior to him coming was all coming to a head right then and there. And these festivals that they celebrated for so long, and yet they missed it. They were willingly ignorant of it. Not all of them. But as a whole, the nation missed it. And so he's crying because there is going to be judgment brought upon them, which we see happen in 70 A.D. with the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and all of this stuff that goes on. And so he told us, and we finished in the book of Mark last week, that we need to be watching. And we're going to see that. And I'm going to, I promised you guys, I left you a little bit of a cliffhanger last week. I'm going to explain this today. But before we do that, we're going to start in Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23. This is going to talk about the, the festival today, the Feast of Trumpets. Starting in verse 23, it says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You should do no customary work on it. You shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. Two verses, all it is that talks about this here in Leviticus. Remember, Leviticus was kind of going through over that. We've been working through this thing um, with each chunk of passage here when it goes to each festival. But this festival here goes by several different names. One, obviously, is the Feast of Trumpets. But another one is Yom Trua, which means it's a day of blowing. They blow these trumpets. And I'll show you what this is, because I brought one in today, is the trumpets. Don't think of what you see in the band Okay, or sometimes what you see in the movies with these silver trumpets that they're standing up there like the pr uh, processions of king. This would be the trumpet. This is called a shofar. It is a ram's horn. Now, this is what is considered a medium-sized one. Believe it or not, there are bigger ones. And believe it or not, I am terrible at blowing this thing. I am going to attempt it later, um, but it will not be pleasant for any of us. So, But anyway, when you look at these, 
You've got this blowing of the trumpets here that's going on. But the name that you're probably most familiar with if you studied anything about the Jewish people at all is Rosh Hashanah. It's the new year. It's the beginning of a time of repentance that leads us into the, what they call the 10 days of awe between the Feast of Trumpets and the next feast, which we'll talk about next week. But let's look at this and how this is set up. I'm going to lay out the principles here for you, how they practice this and different things like that. And then we're going to get into how does Christ fulfill this, okay? So bear with me here. Now, this all starts in the month of Elul, okay? So we, I've got these up here for you. This is Elul. Now, the seventh month, remember, there's two calendars they go by, the civil calendar and the religious calendar, and that it was in the month, or in the book of Exodus, where God said, this will be the first month for you. Before, it was the seventh month, and he just changes, so they're going off of two different things here. And so the month of Elul is the sixth month, and that is the time of repentance, when it's time of preparation. I'm going to switch mics so we don't have to mess with this no more. Can you hear me all right? All right. So here we go. The month of Elul. It's a time of preparation that going into the month of Tishri, they are going to spend time in, in, in time of repentance, in a time of, of getting prepared for the Day of Atonement. So... It's the month that precedes Tishri, and in the month of Tishri, there are three holy days, as we saw in that calendar. There is the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And in a Jewish observance, the month of Elul is this month-long preparation time, beginning to repent of one's sins, to be more diligent, to fulfill the commandments of God. In other words, it's kind of like, we need to straighten up. It's a preparation time. And so during the month of Elul, they will grab this, this shofar and they will blow it every day at the end of the morning service because they'll go into the synagogue every single day with the exception of the Sabbath day and the day preceding the Feast of Trumpets. So Tishri 1. It's, they do that in order to separate the blowing that is based only on custom against the command of Scripture. Okay? So what they're doing before is just custom. But what is Rosh Hashanah? Okay? What is it? It's the second thing that they do. It's a way that they observe it, and the meaning behind it is that according to the teaching of the rabbis, the name Rosh Hashanah means the head of the year because it's the new, new creation, essentially what it is. It's a new beginning. It's like our January 1, right? We have um, New Year's Eve, and then we go into New Year's Day. And so this is what they're doing. They're setting up for this. But the reason they say this is a couple of reasons. Number one, they believe that the world was created on Tishri 1. That is what they believe and very likely would be. It makes sense. The other thing is, is that it is the beginning of the sabbatical year count. They have to count seven sabbatical years. Remember, that is part of the reason that they were sent into exile is because they were not giving the land Sabbaths, which is every seven year they had to allow the land to rest. That's the beginning of that. So it marks that time frame. And then the third thing that it does is this begins to count for the year of Jubilee, which is the 50-year span. And then all debts are forgiven, all slaves are released, all of that kind of stuff. And so in rabbinical literature, Rosh Hashanah concerns really three different things. The anniversary of creation. It's also a day of judgment that they are now going to be judged. And thirdly, it's a day of this renewing of the bond between man and God. In other words, at this time of year, any uh, God-fearing Jewish person takes it extremely seriously. It, it is, it, in some circles, to put it in uh, something that perhaps we've been around, is that if you've ever been a part of a church that maybe recognizes Lent, some people take Lent extremely seriously. Some people's like, oh, I'm going to give up gum for Lent, or I'm going to give up work for Lent, or something like that. You know, but, but, but for them, I mean, they, they begin to take it seriously. There'll be a lot more fasting in times of, of things like that. 
So this is part of what Rosh Hashanah is. It's a celebration of the Jewish New Year. As we get to this time, you're going to see that take place. You'll see a lot more stuff on Facebook with it. Now, another thing that they do is during this time, they blow the shofar. And they blow it a lot. Okay? Now, these trumpet blasts themselves, there's going to be 100 trumpet blasts when they do this. But there's four different categories, okay? The, the first one is called the Dekaya. I don't know if I'm saying that right. But this is long, single blast. It's straight plane. It's this continuous note. Uh, it symbolizes an expression of joy and contentment. The next one is the Shevarim, which is, is uh, it's three short blasts. And these notes are broken up, but it symbolizes their weeping and their crying. And you're going to see this in Scripture in a little bit. The third one is called the Trua. And these are extremely short. They're a combination of these nine staccato notes, which is just real quick, quick-sounding notes, um, short trills, things like that. But it's, it, it symbolizes the trepidation, the sorrow, and the sobbing. I mean, all of these things are leading up to repentance. And then the last one is the Takaya Gedola, if I'm saying that correctly, which means the great, great Takaya, or it's the last trump. It's the one that symbolizes the hope of redemption. And it is a very long and final note. And I want you to keep in the back of your mind the last trump, okay? Keep that in the back of your mind. Now, I'm going to show you a video of a guy that is going to do these, okay? So, I, so you can hear what they sound like so you don't have to listen to me screw this up. So go ahead. So that gives you an idea of what they sound like. Now, I did attempt to do those. Okay, here we go. Just for you. Yes, isn't that lovely? Now you know why I found a video. Yes, thank you. I'll be here all week. Be sure to tip your waitress. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, this is something now I'm joking with this a lot and stuff. And you saw his shofar was extremely long. And that's how long. Because the longer the shofar, the more spiritual you are. I'm not even kidding with that. Like They make tiny ones too. Those are starter kits, okay? And so that's probably what I should have started with, you know, something that had like the notes all figured out for you and you just push a button. 
It's like if you've ever gone to a military funeral anymore, nobody plays taps. It's recorded. It's a recording inside of the, the bugle. I need one of those for the shofar. I'm going to work on that. I bet I could market that. Okay, anyway, we're getting distracted. So they will do 100 of these different blasts of the first three categories combined, and they'll go back and forth with them. But the, after the 99th one, the 100 is that Takaya Gadula. I don't know. Again, I don't know if I'm saying that correctly. And they would blow that out as long as they could hold their breath. They would just hold that note very succinct and all of that. And all of this, guys, has very messianic implications. In other words, Jesus is going to fulfill these things. Uh, and we're going to talk about that here in a minute. But the bottom line is, is this isn't something they fool around with. This is something they still do today. If you find a messianic congregation during uh, here in America or anywhere else, they will still hold these different these uh, events. And it's a time of celebration and all of that. But it's getting in this preparation of repentance and a time of mourning, which will turn into a time of joy. Remember, the Day of Atonement, which is the one that's coming next, is the only day of the year that the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. So you've got all this preparation time, including the Feast of Trumpets, leading into that point where they could go into the very presence of God to make atonement on behalf of the nation of Israel. It's extremely important what was going on. So, now let's look at this in a couple other places of what is happening here so that you can see how else they use these. In Numbers chapter 29 is where we're going to go next. Numbers chapter 29 and verse 1. This is, again, a, a reiteration of what's going on, but it goes into a little bit more detail. It says, in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a holy convocation, and you shall do no customary work, for it is a day of blowing the trumpets. You shall offer a burnt offering as a sweet aroma to the Lord, one young bull, one ram, and seven lambs in the first year, without blemish. Their grain offering shall be fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an epaph of, of, for the bull, two-tenths for the ram, and one-tenth for each of the seventh lamb, and also one kid of the ghost as a sin offering to make atonement for you, besides the burnt offering with its grain offering for the new moon, the regular burnt offering with its grain offering and their drink offering according to their ordinance as a sweet aroma and an offering made by fire to the Lord. Now, as we get into all of this, guys, there's a several things. Now, we talked about these offerings a couple weeks ago in depth of what they were and all that, so we're not going to go through that. But there's something in here that we need to see because you see the different offerings. Many of those are offerings that they give out of their own admonition, but the other one is the sin offering is because I have trespassed the laws of God in some capacity. Now, making atonement for one does not, is not the forgiveness of sin. It is the covering over, and it is making one pure and doing so. So now that they are purified to touch the holy things of God, which is very important. But it is on the new moon. And this is another name for it is the festival of the new moon because it only starts when the new moon is seen. We'll talk about that momentarily. But one of the things that they do is they practice is that some of them, they will stand up and read the entirety of the Mosaic Law. And you actually watch this take place in the book of Ezra. In Ezra chapter 8 and verse 1, it says, Now all the people gathered together as one man in an open square that was in front of the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear and understand on the first day of the seventh month, which is Tishrei. This is what we're talking about, okay? Then he read from it in the open square, and that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday. Before the men and women and the 
and those who could understand, and the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. So Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood, which they had made for the purpose, and beside him at his right hand stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah. And at his left hand was Padiah, Mishael, Malchiah, Hashem, Hashabadana, uh, Zechariah and Meshulam. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up, and Ezra blessed the Lord and the, and the great God. And then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. You're seeing a principle of worship here. This is why in a lot of churches, when a, a verse is read, they will stand up, because it is a sign of respect. But what was happening here is they're standing up at the giving of the law, and they are reenacting what happened at Mount Sinai. Then they fall on their knees in worship to God. Verse 7. Uh, also, Jeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hadijah, Messiah, Kalitha, excuse me, Azariah, Jezebel, Hanan, Peliah. You guys want to know how many of those I'm butchering right now? Pretty much all of them. The Levites helped the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place, so they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, to send portions and rejoice greatly, because they understood the words that were declared to them. Now this is what's going on, guys, is that it's the rebuilding of the temple. Now Nehemiah comes in, he's going to build the wall and protect them. And after all of this is done, Ezra stands up, and in front of all all the people on the first day of Tishri, that he's going to stand there and they're going to read and recite the giving of the law, which was their covenant with God. You have to understand that. What made them right with God is the fact that they were chosen by God. When you see the word elect in the New Testament, it is always a reference to the Israelites because they were God's chosen. And so in doing this, they would use the shofar and blow that. And there was this... Um, reading of the law that was always given. And so the use of shofar throughout Scripture is used 10 different times in 10 different ways in the Old Testament. It was the sound of the trumpet that was given at the Mosaic Law, which is part of the reason that they do that. You see that the sound of trumpets and the angels talking, and then they would blow these things. Secondly, when the walls of Jericho fell down, they weren't walking around. If you've seen VeggieTales, there weren't a bunch of peas hopping around the wall that blew a silver trumpet. It was a shofar, and that is when the walls fell down, giving them access into the promised land. The third thing that was used is that Gideon used it to confuse the camp of the Midianites. Okay? Now, I know some of this may not make a lot of sense to you, but we did over the last year go through all of this, and I don't have time to unpack it all today. The another way that it was used, it was a call to war. It was a warning of war. Uh, the flip side of that is when the war was over, it was time to cease. They would blow it again. It was also used when a, a king was being anointed and chosen as the king, they would blow them at that time. And, of course, it was given at the Feast of the New Moon, as, as we're seeing here, the Feast of Trumpets, okay, but specifically at this feast. And then another one is they would use it simply to praise God. Another time it was used as a call to repentance. And another time it was a declaration of Israel's sins. I mean, these shofars are very active. You see them used in the New Testament. You see them used in the Old Testament. The reason that you and I don't know anything about it is we're not Jewish, number one, and the American church has lost its roots into what all of these are 
come from? Because Jesus is a Jewish rabbi speaking to Jewish people. So it is assumed that they understand what he's talking about. And that is going to take us into the scripture that we're talking about last week. Is that there's a statement that is made by Jesus that they understood that we have misunderstood and taken out of context. And we have to understand that is that Jesus was a Jewish man speaking to Jewish people, and so those customs were important. It's not something that we have to do. The Bible was written for us, not to us, and we have to remember that. So when we get into this next part here as we talk about this, I am of the belief that the rapture and the second coming of Christ are two separate events. They are not one and the same, and a lot of times they get combined. But the rapture in and of itself is the taking away of the church. If you've ever seen any of the movies, um, that, that came out. It's, I think it was back in the 70s, A Thief in the Night. You guys remember this, some of the old church folks? Yeah, I mean, it was like, it was horrible production quality. Um, the storyline was, was pathetic, but I mean, the church takes away mass chaos, the world blows up. That's pretty much the whole story. There's a lot of fiction in that that happens, but the bottom line is, is that the snatching away of the church, the rapture, um, is, is something that is separate from Christ's second coming. Now, on Wednesday nights, we were getting into that specifically, so we're not going to unpack that here. We're going to assume that we all agree on that stance, this idea of this pre-tribulation rapture. Let me lay this out briefly so everybody's on the same page. Is that the rapture of the church comes, and then there's going to be a seven-year period of tribulation where the Antichrist rises. Three and a half years, it's going to be all hunky-dory, everything is good. Then he is going to create all sorts of problems. At the end of that seven years would be the second return of Christ, where he comes down and sets up his messianic kingdom for a thousand years your reign. Now, there's a whole lot in that. I understand. I don't expect you to understand it all at this, at this point, but the bottom line is, is that these are things that are going to happen, so we are going to assume that everybody's on the same page pre-trib rapture, because when we talk about these trumpets and these shofars, there are three trumpet sounds in Judaism. There's the first trump, there's the last trump, and there's the great trump, and if you live in America, there's President Trump. Come on. Somebody, yeah, okay. All right, I couldn't resist. Sorry. Father, forgive me. Okay, here we go. But there are those three things, those three different trumps, and they are used succinctly. But what happens is we think, we read through these filters, we assume that either they're one and the same or they're referencing something different. Each of these indicate a specific day in the Jewish year. So on the Feast of Pentecost, they blow the shofar. You know what they call that? The first trump, because it is the end, you're ending the spring feast, you're going into that summer lull before the start of fall. So that's called the first trump, and it represents is that it's a proclamation that God was betrothed to Israel. That Sinai covenant that was made was a marriage covenant. And it was God and Israel coming together. It happened in the book of Exodus when the law was given. All right, that is what Shavuot is, is looking at, and we looked at that a couple of weeks. Now, the great trump is something that we will talk about next week on the Day of Atonement, all right? So we're not going to get into that. But the last trump is always blown on Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets. Now, you've got the first and the last that correspond with one another, then you've got the great trump after that. The first and the last represent to a Jewish mind the two horns of the ram that was caught in the thicket when Abraham went up onto the mountain to sacrifice Isaac as what God's told him to do, 
And so he went up there being obedient. God stops him, and he says no. And over there, they see the ram. They pull it out. His two horns represent the first and the last trump, okay? So this is where these ideas come from. But now, let's get into Scripture, and let's talk about this just for a moment here. Because I promise I won't go too much longer. But the bottom line, I want you to see something going on. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And we're going to start in verse 13. Now, the letters to the Thessalonians are written by Paul, and he is putting their mind at ease because many of them are worried that Christ had already returned and somehow they missed it. So here's what he says in verse 13. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus." For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. These are these trumpets that we're talking about. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, why is he telling them to be comforted with this? Because they're afraid that, hey, grandma died. When when Jesus comes back, are are they stuck? I mean, are they not going to experience the joy of the rapture? What's going on? And he's giving them peace. He said, here's what's going to happen. Jesus is going to come back. It says, with the, the sound of the trumpet, the shofar, they... The dead in rice will rise first, and then we who are alive will be taken second. Now, don't think of this as like a day or anything like that. I mean, it's going to be boom, boom. It's going to happen very, very quickly. But it's the sound of the trumpet. Now, here's what I'm going to say to you, is that I believe that the rapture is going to happen on the Feast of Trumpets. Now, we watched how all these other feasts have been fulfilled by Christ. We can see where we're at in the middle of between all of these feasts right now. The Feast of Trumpets is something that I believe is going to be the rapture of the church because you had all of these signs that pointed to his exact coming. Why do we assume anything else? Okay, well, let's look at another verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Starting in verse 50, says, now this again, Paul writing to the Corinthian church. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery, all right? We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruptible, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall we brought to the past, saying that it is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Which trumpet did he say? The last trumpet. Okay? Now that means something to them. Because when is the last trumpet blown? Rosh Hashanah. So again, this isn't just, every word is there specifically put by God in the Scripture. This is very specific to that. Now, some will sit here and say, oh, the last trumpet refers to the seventh angel blowing the last trumpet in Revelation. Well, I got news for you folks. The book of Revelation was not written when Paul wrote this letter, okay? It cannot be referencing that. It cannot be. So this last trumpet, now, this twinkling of an eye, this is the great rapture verse. This is what you see, you know, bumper stickers on in the twinkling of an eye, and you'll see them to say, like, you know, if there's no driver in this car, you miss the rapture or something like that. I mean, you know, just, just crazy stuff. But the twinkling of an eye is not the blink of an eye. It is the recogni- recognizing of, of what's going on. 
And so we see all of these different things happening because this in 1 Corinthians 15, also in 1 Thessalonians 4, are talking specifically about the removal of the church at the last trumpet. And we can make the two connections that they're talking about the same thing. Now, let's go on. What did Jesus tell us to do? He told us that we need to watch, right? Matthew 24 and verse 42. He says, watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming, right? We don't know what hour he's coming. Okay, that's fine. But last week I read you this passage. Now, he told us to be watching. Mark chapter 13, verse 32 says, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch, and pray, for you do not know when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowning, crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he finds you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, Watch. Now, there's a couple of different things. Remember, the emphasis here is that we're to be watching, we're to be prepared, and that is that time frame that we're in. And during this time, we're supposed to be evangelizing the world, we're supposed to be driving the Jews to jealousy, and we're to be watching for the signs. Now, what signs would he be talking about? Because he got on, the Jews were judged for not recognizing the signs of the times when he came the first time. Now, here we've got this going on. But he says, and let's go back to verse 32. But of that day and hour, no one knows. Now, here's how we read this. We put a comma after the word hour. But of that day and hour, no one knows. That's how we read it. But that is not what it says. It says, but of that day and hour, no one knows. What I'm telling you is that another name for the Feast of Trumpet is the Feast of the Day and Hour No One Knows. And here's what it is, is that this happens at the new moon. Now, Paul tells us don't be ignorant of the signs. It's Christ telling us to look for the sign. And it says that nobody knows the day or hour. Well, let's look at the, what this is because I've got a couple of pictures I want to show you. Here is a picture of the new moon right there. Can you see that? Barely. It's pretty much non-existent. At best, it's a sliver. Go to the next one. The new moon is over here, all in black. Now, what is this talking about? Here's how this worked. In order to, for them to go, they followed the lunar calendar. And so Tishri 1 did not start. The Feast of Trumpets did not start until two witnesses saw the new moon. So they'd be standing out there watching, and they didn't know when it was going to happen. And so, originally, this was a one-day festival. They've now changed it to a two-day festival just in case they missed the first day. Because if it's cloudy, you don't see that moon. And if you're not watching, you'll miss it because it'll go right by you. But what will happen is these two people, they need two witnesses to say, I saw the new moon. Then they will go to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin will grill them and say, yes, we officially declare that the Feast of Trumpets has begun at that point. They call it the day and hour that no one knows is because they don't know when it's going to start. It's whenever that new moon hits. So it's not that we don't know the times and the season of which Jesus is going to come back. We do know it. We have taken that verse completely out of context, and we have put our own spin on it. There's two full things that are going on here. Now remember, I told you that everything in here is, is of the Jewish wedding ceremony. Remember Jesus says that I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am there you may also be. One of the things that would happen is after they were betrothed together, remember that the church is called the bride of Christ, is that the betrothed groom would go off and he would begin to build a home. 
and he was not released to go back and gather his bride until the father said that, yes, the house is prepared, it is complete, you may now go. All of these things coming together, guys, is what's pointing to the fact that we can see here and we can know the times and the hours. We can watch this and see this, and this is why I'm saying that at the rapture of the church, the Feast of Trumpets will be fulfilled. Now, let's read 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 1. Now, keep that in mind. No one knows the day or hour. Keep that whole idea, this new concept to a lot of you. Verse 1, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. So when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and that they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep and sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet of the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. What's he telling him? You're in the light. You should be watching. The only way he's going to come up as a surprise to you if you're not looking. And if this is not a specific day, in other words, it's just arbitrary and up in the air, how can we be watching? Because the signs for the end times are not pointing to the rapture. They're pointing to the tribulation. And that's what we've got to understand. We have got to take off these filters of which we read Scripture and read Scripture and allow it to interpret itself. And if we do this, then we can see what's going on. The first four feasts had everything to do with Jesus' first coming, his death, burial, and resurrection, and ultimately the birth of the church and Pentecost. But now we're watching the fulfillment of the second coming of Christ, and it begins with the rapture of the church. And what is the sign that we're to be watching for? The Feast of Trumpets. I am of the belief that Jesus, the rapture will happen on the Feast of Trumpets. And it's the day that no one knows the day or hour, but the bottom line is, is that we can watch it because the signs are there. Remember in Genesis 1 that the light was created for signs and for seasons. It's the exact same word that is used every time it's talking about these feasts, these holy convocations. All of this are patterns that we can follow, and we've got to take our spin off it. Amen? God's good. So we can know. We just may not know exactly when it's going to happen. 